Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe Community Church. Um, before we get started with the time in God's Word, I just wanted to say happy Grandparents Day. So it's Grandparents Day today. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I, I saw it on my uh, Google Calendar. Jesse reminded me, but uh, we are really appreciative of all the grandparents in here. So uh, even though we don't normally do this, we do want to honor you. So we're just going to uh, clap real quick to honor the grandparents who are in this room. So if you would uh, join me. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, thanks for being grandparents. Um, my family, we had a baby boy a month and a half ago. Um, and we've had grandparents with us since that time. They actually left yesterday. And so we're really uh, just impressed uh, from the past month about how valuable it is to have the help of grandparents and to have that unconditional love. Uh, sometimes, you know, you see your parents interacting with your children. You're like, why didn't they love me that way? <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, I'm going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you would turn there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to be continuing our study through this book. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, really, because there are a lot of verses to go through, kind of getting this story. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 20. When you turn there, would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we love you. And Lord, we admit and we assent to the importance of your word. And yet at times, Lord, um, we're not that familiar with it. And um, we don't always know what's in the word. And, and, and even though we say that we, we love your word and we, we obey it and we submit to it, Lord, um, it's so important for us then to come each week together as a church to hear from your word so we might understand your character understand your will for our lives, and we might be obedient to it. And so we pray that that would be the case now, Lord. I know that uh, for some of us, maybe this is the first time in, in days or, or maybe the whole week, Lord, that we've turned to your word. I pray, Lord, that, that even if then that's the case, that you would honor this time, Lord, that as we come to you to, to hear from you, for your Holy Spirit to work through the power of your word, Lord, that you would use that mightily, Lord. We pray, Lord, that all this would happen for the good of our church and for your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. A few years back, we did a study at Zoe in the summer. We like to do those short summer series. We did a wisdom one this past summer. But a few years back, we studied the topic of biblical friendship. And the first sermon we did in that series was from the story, the life of David and Jonathan. Because if you go to the Bible, they really are the picture of friendship. They are the friendship um, that, that kind of exemplifies what it means to be good friends above any other in the Old Testament, especially. And there was a question I asked in the beginning of that series, which I'll ask again today because I think it is a good question to kind of get our minds going, get our, our gears turning to this topic at hand. If you found out that your family had all been killed in an accident, maybe a plane trip without you, your spouse, your parents, your children, your siblings... All the family members are gone, and you alone were left. If you found yourself in that situation, where would you turn? Might be a difficult question to ask. It's a sober thing to imagine, but the reason I ask that question is because I would assume that for many of us, for most of us here, the answer to that question is that you would turn to a friend, a good friend. Maybe you have that friend in mind. You, you know immediately who it would be. Maybe you have a few friends, a group of friends that you would turn to. Maybe you wish you knew who that friend should be, but you're not sure anyone would be there for you. Wherever it is that you're at this afternoon, I want you to kind of think about this feeling. Who would you turn to? Where would you go when the going got tough and you didn't have your family maybe anymore? As we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel, we come to chapter 20, and it's a chapter that is about friendship. In kind of a very um, explicit and, and illustrative way, it shows us what it means to be a good friend, and it does so through the character of Jonathan and David. If you were to look at this chapter in your Bibles, oftentimes the title to the chapter is something like Jonathan Warns David, which is a terrible terrible title. It really downplays that this chapter is going to show us something amazing about who these two men were and their friendship with one another. Really, it's a story about 
being a faithful, a good friend. We're going to see a picture painted in this chapter. I'm going to do so by breaking down this story of friendship into three parts. The friendship, the test, and finally, the farewell. So we're going to go ahead and get into it. It's a long chapter, so we're not going to read the whole thing at first. We're going to read it as we go along. First, we see in this chapter the friendship of Jonathan and David. Verses 1 through 23. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now, stop right there. We are going to read the whole chapter, but um, we need to get our bearings a little bit. If you haven't been with us already, you might be wondering what exactly is going on here. David comes to Jonathan. He asks him this question. What have I done wrong? Why is your father trying to kill me? But what's been going on in this story as a whole? Well, in the book of 1 Samuel, we have Samuel, this boy who's born and raised in the house of Eli, the high priest, and he becomes a leader to the people of Israel. In his old age, he passes on the mantle of leadership to Saul, the first king. And Saul is a bad king. He started off good, but he ends up bad. He's disobedient to the Lord. He doesn't care to honor God, and so God rejects him. God rejects Saul for his disobedience, and he chooses a new king, David to be the next in line for the throne. And so it's not going to be Saul's family anymore. It's going to be David, this young shepherd. So David shows up on the scene. He defeats Goliath. He becomes a great warrior in the household of Saul. He marries Saul's daughter, Michal. He's kind of the main character of the story. But Saul gets jealous. And Saul gets angry. And Saul decides, I need to end this guy's life. And so he makes a plan to kill David, and David runs away. And we're kind of going through all these chapters completely. David runs away. He runs back to Samuel, who's still alive. He's an old man living in Ramah. He runs there to hide from Saul, and Saul sends his cronies, his henchmen, to go kill David. When they get there, the Holy Spirit hijacks the situation. He stops them from being able to do anything. They come back. Saul says, I'm going to do it myself. He goes there. The Holy Spirit hijacks Saul. And so David is being protected by the Holy Spirit in the house of Samuel, so to speak. And yet, chapter 20, David comes back. David's in a rough spot. People want to kill him. He's had to dodge the assassins, so to speak. And yet as chapter 20 begins, it's something surprising. David makes the decision not to keep running, not to keep hiding, not to go to a new place, not to go back to his dad in Bethlehem, but he goes back to the hometown of Saul. He goes back to Gebeah, the base of Saul's operation. He goes back into the lion's den. Why? Well, the chapter tells us he does it for one reason, to talk with his friend. He said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? It might seem crazy to us that David would jump out of the frying pan into the fire, but it's not to him. He wants to go to Jonathan because Jonathan is his best friend. There's a friendship that is deep and strong and full of trust. And we witness how healthy it is in this conversation. David wants help. If there's any way he could fix the problem with Saul, Jonathan will help him. He's sure of it. But there is a slight speed bump here. Because it turns out, as we read the chapter, that Jonathan doesn't actually know that Saul has been trying to kill David. Verse 2. And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. As you look at this chapter again, and we see the friendship, we see David coming back in his time of trial to his friend, it might look at first like there's an argument going on, right? David says, your dad's trying to kill me. Jonathan says, no, he's not. He didn't tell me anything. Um, But there's more here to see. Because as you look at this exchange, what we see happen is really beautiful. It's beautiful because it says something about who Jonathan was. Jonathan says, I don't know anything about this. My dad didn't say anything about wanting to kill you. Ever since we first talked about it a long time ago, I talked him down. I talked him off the ledge. He's not doing anything bad. 
He doesn't hate you. And it's not because Jonathan is naive. Okay, we might be thinking wrongly about this. It's not because Jonathan is a dummy. He doesn't know what's going on. It's because Jonathan is so committed to David that Saul won't even say anything bad about David in his presence. Jonathan cared for David so much that Saul knew to speak poorly of David around Jonathan would cause anger and hurt in his son's life. I remember uh, a few years back I was at a camp uh, and there was a, a bunch of pastors there. And for some reason, one of the pastor's wives was also with us. And, um, and I don't remember the whole situation. I try to keep my stories as accurate as I can. Um, but another pastor started to make fun of this other pastor's wife. And they had known each other for a long time. They were longtime friends, but he started to poke fun at the wife. And we were all standing around, and, and we were just, you know, we'd known each other for a while, for years. We were just standing around, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, her husband just tackles the other pastor, and they're rolling down the hill. They're rolling, and I was, I was shocked. I was like, what's going on, man? You guys call yourselves men of God? No. Um, but it was, it was shocking, but it was also kind of romantic. Right? It was kind of cool, because you're like, this guy cared so much about his wife, about her reputation, that he was willing to tackle his friend to honor her. This is what we see in this passage. David comes back to Jonathan. He comes back to a dangerous situation. He trusts his friend, and his friend is trustworthy. Because Jonathan is so committed to David that Saul knows that he's not going to speak poorly about David in Jonathan's presence. When he realizes that he and David see things differently, instead of getting into an argument about it, what does Jonathan do? He says, all right, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever it takes to show you that I'm committed to you, I will do. Why? Because the Bible tells us they're friends. They're really, really good friends. They're best friends. And so the story continues that these two friends come up with a plan together to help deal with David's problem. First, David has a plan to figure out once and for all whether Saul really still wants him dead. Verse 5. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So how does this plan work? Okay. Uh, well, the custom of the people in those days would be that every new moon, which would be about every month, they would have a feast and a sacrifice where they would celebrate together. Now, this is like 3,000 years ago, so you can imagine that there's not a ton of things to do. They don't just go up into the mall to have fun. They don't get online to play video games. Right? There's not a lot of fun things to do. So to celebrate once a month, they get together and they have a meal. And that's kind of the, the celebration, the festival. Now, these meals would last three days. The men would eat together. They would uh, kind of enjoy the time. And in the past, because David was a great man in Saul's army, and he was the son-in-law of the king, David was always at the meals. Since Saul knows David is back in Gebeah, it would be expected for David to be there again, which means that it's the perfect time to set a trap. So David's plan is simple. He says, I'm just not going to show up at the new moon celebration, and we'll see what happens. If Saul isn't planning me harm, if Saul has kind of forgiven me, he's not trying to kill me anymore, then it's no big deal, right? Saul will just say, all right, see you next month. But if Saul gets angry, it shows that he had another nefarious plan for David at the dinner table. Now, before we move on, we need to take a small step back for a moment and consider how risky this all is. If there's one person who stands to gain the most if David dies, you guys know the story, and you know who it is. It's Jonathan. Now, Jonathan did covenant with David in the past. He did make this agreement. They've been friends for a while, but if there's one person who would benefit most from stabbing David in the back, it's this man who he goes to for help. If David dies, Jonathan becomes the next king. And yet Jonathan is the one to whom David turns. I think that amount of trust is incredible. And verse 8 helps us understand where it comes from a little bit more. Look at verse 8 with me. David says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. If there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me 
to your father. See, David trusts his friend Jonathan even more so than he might trust anyone else because what the text tells us is that their friendship is not a friendship of convenience. It's not a friendship simply of common interest. It's a friendship of covenant. That's the word here. You brought me into a covenant of the Lord with you. What does the word covenant mean in Scripture? Well, it's a hugely important word. It's going to be important as we go on through the story of David, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Covenant in the Bible means a lot of things. It means security. It means faithfulness. It means trust. But at its very base level, covenant is a promise for good. A covenant is a promise for good. That I am committed to your good, even if it costs me something. We don't often think about our relationships nowadays in terms of covenants, right? Because that's not, a, it's kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't talk that way. I think even if we look at our relationships in the modern world, most of our relationships aren't this way. They're not promises for other people's good. They're really transactional. If they give me something, then I'll give something back to them. Yet there are a few areas where you can kind of see covenant at work. And I think one is the area of grandparents, which I talked about. Grandparents love their grandkids in a way that has nothing to do with what their grandkid can give them most of the time. Right? It's not about that little baby somehow providing them with, with resources when they get old. No, they'll be long gone by that time. It's just love. The promise for their good. It's, that's what the covenant is about. As David and Jonathan plan together, David reminds Jonathan that he trusts him because Jonathan made a covenant of the Lord with him. Verse 8, it's amazing. He says, basically, I trust you so much because of that covenant that if I need to die, you be the one to kill me. That if there's something wrong in me, I'm okay with you being the executioner because I know how committed you are to my good. To come to the son of the king who wants you dead makes no sense in a worldly way. But to David, who trusts in the covenant friendship of Jonathan, it's the best course of action. It's why he came back to Gebeah in the first place. And as Jonathan responds to David, we see that David's trust is not misplaced. Jonathan says in verse 9, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm to come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. In response to David's reminder of his covenant, Jonathan takes David out to the field, and he renews a covenant with him again. He renews a promise. And if you look at the words, it says he loved him as his own soul. In renewing the covenant, he says, I'm going to care for you as I care for myself. I will not do you harm. I will tell you everything you need to know for your safety, no matter what my father intends. As long as they both shall live, as long as their families survive, as long as they have relatives to look after one another, they will do so. This is the extent of the covenant. This leads us to the next part of the story where Jonathan proves his care for David by coming up with a plan to protect him, even if Saul wants him dead. Verse 18, Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. 
then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Here's how it's going to work. Jonathan's going to figure out Saul's intent. If it turns out that Saul actually wants to kill David, then he's going to shoot arrows past his assistant. By shooting the arrows past him and saying, go out there and get the arrows, he's basically giving a symbol that, David, you need to go away. But if he shoots the arrows near, closer to him than the assistant is, he's going to say, come, get the arrows and bring them to me. And that's a symbol to David, who's hiding out in the field, that he can come back to the house of Saul and all is well. There's a symbolic nature to the plan. Either David will have to go, leave, or he will come back as the arrows show. It's a good plan, and it's necessary. Now, if you've read this story before, if you've read about it, you might have seen people ask the question, well, why did he need to do this elaborate plan? Why do they need to come up with this symbol? And I think that it actually, there's a good reason for that. Has anyone here seen the movie Gladiator? Uh, you know, it's an old movie, and it's also rated R, so I don't necessarily recommend you to see it. Um, but if you have seen the movie Gladiator, you might remember that there's a scene near the end of the movie where um, uh, they go speak to Maximus. He's in prison. And they're deciding, you know what, like Commodus, he's such a bad emperor that we're going to have to overthrow him. So there's an army outside. We're going to get you. We're going to take you over, get your army, and then you're going to come back and take over Rome. That's the plan. And uh, it's a really intense scene in the movie because everyone's kind of sneaking around at night and they're just about ready to go. And all of a sudden, the Roman soldiers show up. They catch Maximus. They catch the senator. They catch Commodus' sister. They're all part of this plan. They catch him because they've been followed. Their plan doesn't come to fruition. They get caught. And so Jonathan's plan is meant to take care of that kind of circumstance from happening. Instead of being possibly tailed or followed, he's going to shoot the arrows. He's going to have the symbol. They don't have to communicate in person. He's going to let David know what will happen. And again, the author wants to show us in all this just how good a friend Jonathan really is. He's going to help out David. He's going to find out how much danger he's in. He's going to protect David in every way he can. He's planning for it. He's prepared for it. And so the first thing we see, the first scene we see in this chapter is this amazing, beautiful friendship. David is in a bad place. He comes to his friend, whom he can trust, because he is a faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping friend. That leads us to the next scene in this story. We see the friendship, and next we see in verses 24 through 34, the test. We see the test. David and Jonathan have come up with a two-part plan. Jonathan will find out what Saul's about, and then he's going to communicate it to David. So the first thing that has to happen is they've got to lay out all the dominoes and see where Saul makes them fall. In verse 24, you can read it with me. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. The stage is set. The actors are in place, so to speak. There's a new moon out. It's a new month. David is out hiding in a field. Saul is in his home. He's sitting at the seat. He always sits at. He's sitting on the throne. Now, across from Saul, on the other side of the big table is Jonathan sitting where he always sits. To Saul's right hand is Abner, who is the commander of the armies of Israel. He's kind of the military boss. And on the left, place number four, it's empty. The tension is building up. If this were a movie, this is what's happening. They're kind of panning from one person to the other. What's going to happen with this whole scheme? How is Saul going to respond to the absence of David? Well, it turns out at this point that it doesn't go exactly as planned. Read verse 26. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Now, if this were a movie, this would be kind of funny to me. This is like comic relief. Okay? At least, I mean, it's, it's ancient Israelite literature. It's the Bible, but there is some humor in it. Remember these stories, they're, they're written for people to tell one another, to, to tell for centuries to one another about who God is and about what he has done in the history of the people of Israel, even if they couldn't always read. And so these stories, like any good story, sometimes have things that break up the monotony of the text. 
In this case, the best laid plans don't go as anticipated. Day one, the seat is empty. And if you're watching the movie in your mind, you can imagine Saul looking over at David's chair, right? He's eating his, his quail or whatever he's eating. And, and, and you can see Jonathan's face and there's like sweat beating on the side, right? Like it's, it's beating up. It's coming down his cheek. He's like, oh shoot, what's my dad going to do? Is my dad a murderous, crazy guy? He's looking around and Saul is, is looking over there at David's seat and his brow is furrowed and he, he looks disturbed for a moment and all of a sudden he just shrugs and, and starts drinking and eating again. Jonathan probably got all shifty-eyed in the moment, right? He's like looking back and forth from empty seat to dad. But Saul's just eating. And the Bible says Saul just assumed he wasn't clean. He figured that David must have had some sort of ritual impurity. He needed 24 hours to cleanse himself before he could come back to the table. And so they just eat the meal. I'm sure Jonathan was weirded out by the whole thing, maybe scared. It was probably an awkward conversation that night. And so we have to reset the chessboard and try again the next day. Run it back. Saul is in the seat. Jonathan is in the seat on the other side of the room from him. On the right-hand side is Abner. This is day two. And on the left, no David. Verse 27. On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And finally, the wheels are in motion. It's kind of like when you guys miss church. You know, one week, we figure you must be sick. Two weeks, we're looking for you. I'm just kidding. In fact, when I was in um, seminary, um, we went to the seminary to go to a friend's graduation. He was graduating with his doctor of ministry, and Christine was there, Christine Terasaki. And now, Jesse and Christine, they weren't dating back then, okay? But Christine was um, at the seminary, and I saw her. And um, we were just acquaintances back then. We had known each other through some mutual friends before. And I had uh, come into the seminary. I think I was coming from the library to go to the graduation. And Christine was like, hey, Eric. I was like, hey, Christine, nice to see you. And she said to me, where's your other half? And so I said, oh, Trisha's in the car. She's still in the car getting ready. And Christine said, no, I meant Jesse. Where's Jesse? And I was like, what? What's wrong with you? Um, because of that, God will make you live the rest of your life with the two of us. Um, no, she said, where is Jesse? And this is what happens here. Right? Saul sees that David is gone. Things are starting to click in his mind two days in a row. He doesn't look at Abner. Because remember, Abner in 1 Samuel 16, he didn't even know who David's dad was. But he looks to Jonathan. He says, where's your buddy, Jonathan? Where is he hiding? What's going on? Verse 28, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. That's the line. That's the party line. That's the plan. That's the test. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. As David had predicted, Saul was planning something evil for David. He's angry at the realization that David is not there, but now he's angry at his own son for his part in keeping David safe. And he turns his own rage against his own family. And Saul said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul affirms everything David had said and more. His intent is laid clear, bring him to me and die. But in these verses, we see that as Jonathan and David test Saul, there's another test going on. It's not just Saul being tested by his son and his friend. It's David, I mean, it's Jonathan being tested by the circumstances. Listen to Saul's words to his son. It's terrible. Being a faithful friend has cost Jonathan dearly. Look at the words. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You have chosen the son of Jesse to your shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. If you hear these words, and you were an ancient Israelite, and even if you're not an ancient Israelite, 
It's shocking. It's insulting. Why bring up Jonathan's mother? It is a severe insult. Now, the Bible is not a coarse book, but it is a very real book. And sometimes things sound a little bit tamer than they actually were, but take it from the narrator that Saul is essentially going ballistic. He's lost it. It's not a calm dialogue here. He attacks Jonathan as viciously as he can, degrading him, using the label son of a rebellious woman to basically say, you're a bastard. You're no son of mine. You've turned your back on your family. You've turned your back on your father. You've turned your back on your lineage, this kingdom. It's perhaps the most hurtful thing that a father could say to his son. Now the words are terrible and they're wrong to say, but they're not wholly untrue. Because as unhinged as Saul is, Jonathan has taken on a cost. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Those words are 100% true. Jonathan, by standing by David, has taken a cost, has paid a price for his future. And notice in verse 32, as Jonathan responds to his dad, that it's followed up these words with action. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? He's defending David, even in this kind of being, being attacked and lambasted by his father. He defends his friend, verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at him and to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Saul throws a spear at his own son. It's no accident, it's no circumstance, coincidence. If you read the two stories of Jonathan and David, you see that Jonathan has kind of allied himself with David. He's taken his place, so to speak. As Saul once threw a spear at David, now he throws a spear at Jonathan, his son. There's a great cost to Jonathan's faithfulness. The loss of his future kingship, the loss of relationship with his father, to whom he used to be so close, the danger to his own health on account of him being faithful to the covenant he made with the son of Jesse. As Saul rages, Jonathan knows from this malice at the palace that his faithfulness to David will exact a price on himself, on his family, on his future. It's a test. It's a hard one. I don't know if I would pass the test, honestly. He made a covenant. He renewed a covenant. Will he stand by that covenant now that it will cost him dearly? Jonathan passes the test. He defends David in the moment of greatest cost. And what does the Holy Spirit want us to see from this man's example? There's probably a, a lot of things, but I think for us as Christians, we need to see that this is the type of faithfulness that honors the Lord. The Bible calls praiseworthy. You know, in Psalm 15, David wrote a psalm about the kind of person who can dwell on the holy hill of the Lord. The kind of person that God loves, the kind of person that God honors and puts up on a pedestal for other people to be like. What kind of person is that? Well, to answer that question in Psalm 15, verse 4, he says it's the person who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You hear that? He makes a promise, and even if fulfilling that promise will hurt himself, he will not change. I imagine that maybe David was thinking of his friend Jonathan when he wrote that. Before we move on, I think we need to let this story challenge us. We live in a fallen and sinful world. We have become accustomed to broken promises, accustomed to breaking them ourselves. And we understand that none of us are perfect. All of us will fail in some way. But 3,000 years ago, there was a friend named Jonathan. And even though he wasn't perfect, he was faithful. When he promised to do good to his friend, he fulfilled it, even though it cost him his kingdom. And if we could put ourselves in his shoes for a moment, how many of us would have done the same? How many of us would have kept faith, would have fulfilled our covenant, even when the cost turned out? to be great. We might be tempted to say, of course, you know, of course I would be just like Jonathan. But then you look at your own life and how many times have I promised something to someone and yet cared very little about whether or not I did it? How many times have I not kept my word because it was inconvenient or difficult or painful to do? 
It's a very convicting and serious thing. A man, a woman of their word, is an endangered species in our day and age. But Jonathan is an example in this story of what we should strive to be like. You know what the name Jonathan means? I don't know if we talked about it. The name Jonathan means God-given. means God-given. Now, names and their meaning, you know, I don't know how much stock you put into it, but I think, biblically speaking, names are important. On a very practical, day-to-day level, you can be like Jonathan. You can be a gift from God to others simply by being a person who is faithful and trustworthy and keeps their promises. If you look at your own life, think about the people who have impacted you the most. Think about the people who you would turn to in that case that I brought up in the beginning of the sermon. Think about the people who you consider to be the best friends. Probably isn't the person who consistently broke their word to you. It probably isn't the person who let any excuse stop them from doing what they promised to do. And we know in our hearts that a person who is faithful, even when it is hard, is a gift from God. And yet we overlook the fact that for us to be that same type of friend in others' life, we will have to be willing to pay the cost. Are we willing to do that? This story should help us prepare. If we want the blessings of faithful friendship, of deep trust and covenant love, we should expect that there will be a cost to pay ourselves. There will be times when we're tested like Jonathan. That by God's grace, may we pass those tests. Let's look at verse 34. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. It's pretty incredible. You see why Jonathan is angry in this verse? It's not for his own sake. It's not for his own reputation. It's not even because he got nicked by the spear. He's angry because his father had disgraced David. It's incredible. It's an insight into the heart of this man, this friend. He bears the cost and the shame and the danger because he cares more for David than he cares for himself. He's indignant. He's angry, not because he has been insulted, even though he was insulted terribly, but because David has been wronged. Why would he do this? We have to ask the question. Why? Is it just that some people are born really good friends and some people are born to be flaky, uh, no good people? No. Why is Jonathan this way? It's because of the Lord. If you look back in this passage, you look at all of Jonathan's words, what you will see if you start to count is how many times he mentions the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in this passage. It's incredible. It says the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, over and over again. It's an abundance of times. It's uncommon in the Old Testament for the Lord's name to appear that often in any passage. And it's crazy that it appears in Jonathan's dialogue, coming from his mouth in 1 Samuel 20. He talks about the Lord nonstop. Why does he keep doing it? Because Jonathan knew that the Lord was at work in raising David up. He knew that the Lord had chosen David to be the next king. It wasn't man's will. It wasn't David's will. It was God's will. And so when Jonathan was willing to decrease so that David could increase, he was giving up his kingdom for God's kingdom. The best kind of friend is one who understands that he wants to do and see God's work in your life. Not his own will, but the Lord's will be done. He stood with David. He was faithful to him. He fulfilled his covenant promise because he was seeking the Lord. This leads us to the third and final scene in this chapter. We've seen the friendship. We've seen the test. And finally we see in verses 35 to 42, the farewell. The farewell. Jonathan storms out after the second day. Uh, He doesn't even eat, right? He's so angry. He's done. He walks out. He knows that Saul wants David's head. But of course, Jonathan won't do it. And so all that is left for them to do in the city of Gebeah is for Jonathan to fulfill his vow to go out to communicate to David what has happened in the feast. And so evening comes and goes. It's the third day. It's the next day in the morning. Verse 35, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. 
So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. Jonathan wakes up early. He goes out of town to the field as he and David had agreed. He sends him the signal. He shoots the arrow beyond the boy. He says, go grab that arrow far from you. He's telling David, you need to leave. It's as we feared. It's a sign that he cannot come back. And then Jonathan sends the boy home quickly, leaving him alone in the field. Now, it turns out that he and David are going to talk in just a few moments. It turns out nobody actually followed Jonathan and his boy. It turns out the coast was clear. So the symbol, the signal, wasn't actually necessary. Have you ever read the story and wondered about that? Like, it seems like he didn't actually have to do the thing he planned to do because he ends up talking with David anyway, where they hugging and crying and all that. So what's going on here? Well, I've already explained that the plan was good, but I think the narrator wants us to see something else here. He takes great pains to show us that Jonathan does exactly what he said he would do. As we've seen over and over again in this passage, Jonathan is a man of his word. He's a person you can rely on, a person you can trust. What he says he will do, he will do, even if it's a small thing. The Bible often encourages us that God looks for faithfulness in the small thing. That God looks for those who are faithful in little to entrust them with much. Jesus said this himself. Our character, our integrity, who we are is often built one small faithful step at a time. Keeping faithfulness in the small things. As Christians, we need to be faithful people so that when we speak of our faithful God, people actually believe it. In any case, Jonathan's faithful adherence to the plan leads to this final scene between him and David. David comes out of hiding. Verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. They weep because of the relationship that is deep and abiding and trustworthy and it has to be cut short. Now, it's important for us to note that this whole chapter really focuses on Jonathan. He's been presented as the one who has the greater place of honor. David says that he's Jonathan's servant. He's the one who makes the covenant with David. He brings David into covenant with him. So he's kind of initiating these things. Jonathan is the one who has the place of honor right now as the son of the king. David bows down in thanksgiving to Jonathan. And so as we see what's going on here, we see that David has great respect for this man and also great love and devotion because of how faithful Jonathan has been to him. And this is really what faithfulness does in our lives. When you see it, when you see someone love you faithfully, maybe when you didn't even deserve it, maybe when you were unfaithful to them, when you see that sort of friendship, it moves you. Someone once wrote that a good friend is something that all people agree is a great thing. So we read Jonathan's words to David before he leaves. Verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And that's kind of the last time they see each other in person. I remember in grade school, I had a friend that I had made whose name was Ben. And Ben and I were pretty different. Uh, he was really into American football. Um, I was not into any type of football. Um, he was Armenian, not Armenian. For some of you, he was Armenian, ethnically. Um, I'm Chinese, ethnically. Um, but we got along really well. I don't know what exactly kind of bound us together, but we, we just became best friends at an early age. And he would always involve me when we were playing sports. And he was more athletic than I was, so he would kind of bring me into things and be that kind of older brother figure, invite me over to his house. And I remember we had finally gotten really close by the end of that year. Uh, I'm not sure which grade it was, even to the point where our moms were hanging out while we were playing together. It was, it was just a great friendship. And then in the summertime, I found out that he was moving away. There have been a few times in my life where we've had to say goodbye to friends just as they had begun to truly feel at home 
with us, fully plugged in, fully invested maybe in the church. And it's always tough. And it's this way sometimes for some of you, I'm sure. You finally make a good friend only for that person to move churches or schools or cities the next month or the next week. In the providence of God in this story, in the moment of Jonathan's greatest proof of friendship, his greatest show of support, he and David are forced the next morning to part ways. They're forced to say goodbye, to say farewell, pretty much for the rest of their lives. And so the parting is bitter. They're weeping, but it's also sweet because there's a blessing in this farewell. You can read it right there. Jonathan says, go in peace. Go in peace because we have sworn in the name of the Lord and the Lord shall be between us. It might sound like Jonathan's just kind of giving a platitude, right? Like, peace out, you know, like, go, just have a great life. But that's not it. I think this is the point of Jonathan's words. Jonathan knows there's going to be hard times ahead. Jonathan knows that David is still going to somehow become the next king of Israel. He knows that probably that's going to involve a lot of death, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow. There will be chaos, but between the two of them, there will be peace. There will be problems. There will be pain in the circumstances. Saul is consumed with rage against David, but what Jonathan wants David to know is that between them, there is still security. There is still support. There is still a relationship. No matter what else happens, Jonathan will be for David. It's a picture for us of deep covenantal faithfulness. The Lord shall be between these men and their families forever. There are scary things ahead, but in the timeless words of Calvin and Hobbes, things are never quite as scary when you've got a best friend. As we read this story, we should come away with an appreciation for faithfulness. I had a friend um, who would often say, he was often disappointed with friends, and he would say, I, I, I just pray that God would give me a friend like Jonathan. Now, this is the one thing I've been praying for, for so long. God, just give me a friend who loves me the way Jonathan loved David. And I think we can relate to that desire. I think we can relate to, to wanting someone who would be so faithful to you, who would care for you, who would stand up for you in the time of need, when you're being attacked, when you're being chased, that they would covenant with you for your good. They would promise to be on your side. But as we land the plane here, I'd like you to consider this from another perspective. It is great to have a friend like Jonathan. And we should strive to be this sort of friend. But as Christians, we need to know the truth. That there is a friend greater than Jonathan here. He's available for us every day. It's amazing to see how Jonathan points us to Jesus in so many ways in the story. Have you guys seen it? Did you see it in the story? The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. All of us are guilty before God. We've rejected God. We've turned our back on the one true king of the universe. And like David, we are a step away from death. But it's not because we're innocent. We're not like David and we did nothing wrong. No, we deserve the death that is coming. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve judgment because of our own sin and failures and wickedness and weakness. We have a problem with the king. But the Bible tells us that Jesus, the son of the king, came and he stood in our place. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He says he laid down his life for his friends. Like Jonathan, Dave, I mean, like Jonathan, Jesus took the wrath of the Father. He forsook his heavenly kingdom for our good. He was pierced by a spear as he hung on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. The Bible tells us that just like Jonathan, Jesus is the perfect the greater covenant-making faithful friend. When Jesus died, the night he died, he welcomed us into a covenant because of his blood and his body, a covenant that those who repent and turn to him, those who accept him as Lord and Savior, those who place their trust in Jesus, he would work out our forgiveness and he would work all things for our good. I'd asked in the beginning 
If you had an unthinkable tragedy in your life, where would you turn? Maybe you thought of a friend on this earth. Maybe you thought of someone right away. As Christians, I hope that the answer would be that we would turn, even before any of those people, that we would turn to Jesus. We have a friend in him. We have seen him tested. He's shown himself to be faithful. We are blessed and we have peace. No matter what chaos we have in this world, because we are friends with the Son of the King. Let's pray. Father God, as much as we admire Jonathan, I pray that we would worship and praise Jesus Christ. But I know it sounds even like a a cliche to say that Jesus is our friend. And it can be, Lord. We can take that so lightly. And yet, in light of this story of faithfulness between Jonathan and David, Lord, would we understand greater the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? Lord, we thank you for the gospel. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in this room who have maybe taken lightly the faithfulness of Jesus, that we would repent of that and turn to him. I pray also, Lord, that as we consider our lives, as we examine ourselves, Lord, we would see if we are growing in Christ-likeness to be faithful ourselves, to be those who keep our word and our promises, not for our own sake, but for the good of those around us and for your glory as your people. Or in this time of worship, we pray that we would be men and women who understand the loving, faithful friendship of Jesus, that we will respond to it rightly. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.